Hi, I'm Jen, and I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that this podcast deals with the hard stuff in life. We share stories of trauma and triumph, and the subject matter may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for content warnings and take care of yourself. If you want to further support what we're doing, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nowwhatpod. You're listening to Now What, a podcast where we celebrate the human spirit by sharing stories of strength and resilience. For those going through hard times or looking to get inspired to change their own life, we're your hosts, Jen and Tisha. Hi, and welcome back to Now What? I'm Jen. And I'm Tisha. Today, we're here with our special guest, Kaylee. She is a licensed social worker from Pennsylvania, who I've been stalking on Instagram for a while. And I just decided I was going to invite her to be on the show because she's amazing. She works as a school clinician, and she also runs birth trauma peer support groups. And she's actually agreed to come on today and share her own birth story with us all today. And we're just so thrilled that she's agreed to be on because her message is really important. Welcome, Kaylee. Thank you. That was quite the introduction. (laughs) Thank you. It's weird hearing yourself (laughs) introduced like that, isn't it? I know. What a wonderful compliment. Thank you. (laughs) Do you want to maybe take us through a little bit? Not, not so much of exact, you know, everything, but kind of what happened when, when Cal was born. And yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I have my, I have my long, my medium and my short version. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I had a normal healthy pregnancy and, um, I went in to be induced because I did have a few high blood pressures. I had the full two day induction and I was 10 centimeters ready to push. My doctor had come in and told me, um, we're finally after 48 hours ready to go. And she left the room and my, um, nurse and my husband were in the room and I said, I wasn't feeling well. And my nurse said, that's really normal for transition. I'll get you, um, a bag to throw up in if if you feel like you're going to throw up. And I said, no, something's really wrong. I don't feel right. Um, And then I started yelling that something was wrong with my heart. And she looked at the monitor and she was like, no, like nothing is showing up. You're fine. And then I collapsed. And so I went into cardiopulmonary arrest. So I stopped breathing and my heart stopped. And my husband, obviously I don't remember any of this. I actually don't remember being in the hospital at all. I don't remember my two days of labor, et cetera. But my husband remembers that moment. And he said, I just looked as if like my eyes were still open, but there was nothing behind them. And so he got in my face and tried to slap me and wake me up. And then he ran to the hallway to yell for a doctor and my nurse hit um, the code blue button. So then people just swarmed in um, and they got me right to the OR. Um, and Steve remembers them shouting, like, do we have a pulse? You know, what, what, um, what are the pressures? And thankfully he does not remember those answers because mm. that would have been a no. Um, and they got me to the OR and they got Cal out in six minutes from when wow. I COVID. That is yeah. fast. Yes. It was a, it was a splat. They called a splash and dash. So they just splashed the, whatever the betadine or whatever it is solution. Um, and they just cut you open. Um, so as soon as the code blue was hit, they initiated CPR on me. And so there were two ICU nurses who were 
switching back and forth every two minutes um, while my son was born. So I was not alive while Cal was born. Um, technically, they were doing CPR. That lasted for another couple of minutes. So I was down for about seven or eight minutes. And then I was resuscitated. And at this point, my wonderful OB realized that it was highly likely I was suffering from an amniotic fluid embolism. And the problem with an amniotic fluid embolism is several things. I mean, they're, they're very rare. Um, this hospital had actually never seen one before and they are deadly. And so, um, the, the rate of survival is getting better as, as we get more technology to support, um, cardiac arrest and um, the bleeding, which I'll get to in a minute, but it it used to be about like an 80% death rate when someone suffered an AFE. And I believe if um, the neonate, if the baby is still inside, like Cal was, their rate of survival is about like 40%. um, So still pretty low. So because my doctor knew that I was having an AFE, she knew that the next phase. So after you go into cardiac arrest, about 50% of moms will make it out of that. And 50% will die from a cardiac arrest. The next stage is, is DIC, which is disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is basically your body clots everywhere that it shouldn't, which causes um, a clotting cascade. And then you bleed out everywhere. Um, And so it's, it's an excessive hemorrhage. And that's what happened. I started bleeding out excessively. I needed 143 units of blood product. um, And there's about eight or nine in the human body. So they were just pumping me full of blood and it was just coming out as fast as it was going in. And I ended up coding again about, I believe it was about an hour after my first code. And I coded again. They were able to revive me again, but they realized that my heart and my lungs were at that point, so, um, damaged at that point, I would say, um, that I needed life support. And so I needed something called ECMO, which takes the blood out of your body, oxygenates it for you outside of your body, and then puts it back in. So it's actually the highest form of life support. It's gotten a lot more press since COVID because there've been people put on it, um, who have had really severe cases of COVID. So while that's all happening, the timing is not great. Um, because I was 10 centimeters ready to push. So everyone's showing up to the hospital to meet Cal. So my parents were already there and my mom had just stepped out to tell my dad in the waiting room that she was actually going to be there for the birth. And they heard the code blue over the loudspeaker for my room, which was awful. Yeah. And then more people came, the same story had to be retold. And that was just really hard for my family. And then they were all together over the course of the next, I would say seven or eight hours while they worked on me and the updates they were getting. The original update was that I had had an AFE and that it was looking like I would be transferred to the ICU and that I was going to survive, but I was critical. And then I continued to bleed out and my OB came back to my family and said, I need you guys to pray. We don't really know what to do. We can't stop the bleeding. And that was right before I'd coded for the second time. Right. So they ended up um, trying to embolize some of my arteries to stop the bleeding and were unsuccessful. So they needed to do um, a hysterectomy. So they took out my uterus and one of my ovaries and they actually 
impact me, one of the um, trauma surgeons used to be in the army. And so he ended up packing me like he would a war victim. So it was with quick combat gauze. And they just put that sort of all in my abdomen and left me open, knowing that they would have to go back in. So at that, I was on ECMO, I was on a ventilator. And I was packed and sent to the hospital that transferred the ECMO to this hospital so that they could maintain the ECMO circuit. And they have a cardiothoracic ICU, which is what I was in. And I was sedated for five days on both the, I was on the ECMO for two or three days and then ventilated for four or five. And then I woke up and got to meet my son for the first time five days after he was born. Um, I unfortunately don't remember it, but we do have videos of it and pictures of it. So like seeing that. It's hard. So there's a, there's actually a video I just found recently. I didn't know it existed because it was on like my dad's camera, like actual camera, not his phone. Mm-hmm. I found it at Thanksgiving this year of the first time they put Cal on me, which was the day after he was born. There's a video of me on ECMO and on a ventilator of them doing skin to skin for the first time. And that video is just heartbreaking because you can hear everyone talking in the background being like, you did such a good job. Like you're going to make it out of this. It's all going to be okay. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And for me to watch it, it just doesn't feel like me. It doesn't feel like that's my body laying there in that situation. Right. Well, because I think you had mentioned when we spoke before that you didn't remember meeting Cal. So that's why I asked what it was like, what it's like seeing those videos. And yeah, it's, it's definitely hard. Um, I'm so grateful that my family had the foresight to take, there's like 2000 pictures from the 14 days that I was in the hospital and a handful of videos. And I'm so grateful that they took those pictures and videos, even in a time where they weren't sure I was going to make it Mm -hmm. because now I have them. And that's the only thing that I have that in my medical records, I don't have any memories at all. So, right. Mm -hmm. Then, so you were in the hospital for 14 days and then you got to come home. What, What, so what was that like? What was it like coming home after all of this? I mean, it's so much. Yeah. And you have a little baby. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember being in the hospital and all I wanted to do was go home. Once I woke up, all I wanted to do was go home. Um, and the original prognosis when I was still sedated was months. I would be in the hospital for months. And then I was, I just, one day my pain was a lot less and I just was up and walking and was able to leave much sooner. And I was beyond excited. Um, I just remember, I remember that day very well. I remember crying on the car ride home because I was so happy. And I just felt like I had been given the second chance at life and I got to go home with my husband and my baby. And it was all going to be like a fairy tale ending. Like you see in the movies, you have this heartbreaking, terrible thing that happens, but you survive. And then you get a second chance at life and you change your whole life around and you do better and you are a better person. And that was the view that I had coming out of the hospital. Right. Um, And then that quickly changed. When I returned home, I was still physically recovering. Um, I was sleeping 14 to 16 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband and my parents and his mom were taking care of Cal the whole time. I really wasn't 
doing anything at all. Right. Yeah. And I didn't have any desire to do anything at all. Mm-hmm. Which then, of course, I felt horribly guilty about as a new mom. So I, I wanted to do the thing. Like, I didn't get to give him his first bath. I couldn't stand in order to do that. I wasn't able to do any of his firsts in, in those first few weeks. And that was really hard to watch other people do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there was also this part of me that people would be like, Oh, can, can you, you know, you should feed him. You should feed him. And, and the breastfeeding thing is a whole nother story, but I wasn't able to breastfeed for obvious reasons. So they're like, you should feed him a bottle. You should. And, and in my brain, I was like, I do not want to, I want nothing to do with feeding him. But I knew if I said that, everyone would be all worried about me and concerned. And so I just kept playing along and playing along until one day I did like just snap and was like, I don't feel like feeding the baby, leave me alone. Like I'm trying to heal and I hate everything about this. Yeah. So yeah, the, the emotions were really difficult for me. I had a lot of anger and I didn't feel that I had any right to be angry um, because I had survived something that most moms don't get to survive. Um, I mean, there was a mom a month later in Buffalo, New York, who died of an AFE a month after me in the same exact way. She was 10 centimeters ready to push. So I just felt like there was no room for me to not just be grateful every second of every day. Yeah. You just have to be grateful all of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When in point of fact, you were grieving, not having the experience you had hoped for and yeah grieving the fact that you had to have a hysterectomy when you didn't even know. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's easy to say on this side of it, but like there, you yeah. have so much to be grieving. Oh, absolutely. And I, it's so interesting to look back on that person, right? Like what, of course you had the right to grieve Kaylee. Like what? <laughs> look at all of these things. Like I even think that that to myself and I think just there's so much complex trauma there. And there's like, you, you just hit on a really important point that I've spent probably eight months in therapy on is this idea that all of these very intrusive medical interventions happened to me without my consent. And of course I would take them happening all over again in a heartbeat to be able to be here and live, but they still all happened without my knowledge. And I woke up to all these things having been done to my body with no knowledge and again, no consent given. And it's just, it's a terrible feeling Mm -hmm. to be so out of control of your own body. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine. And to then return home and be so out of control of if this terrible, awful thing happened randomly with no, no idea, no prediction that it would happen. Um, I had no predisposition because we don't know what causes AFE yet. What else could happen to me as I'm just walking around? Mm -hmm. How else could I be struck down medically? And yeah, it's just like you wonder, like if I had this underlying thing, then what else? And I I actually think um, you posted something today about like the statistics and the rarity. And I commented on that because it is very rare for 38 year old women to get cervical cancer, which is what happened to me, especially one who gets pap smears regularly. Mm -hmm. Like it it wasn't that I'd never had a pap smear in my life. I had, 
and I still got cancer. So I definitely had, I have had those thoughts of like, you know, you hear something's really rare. You're like, well, what does that mean? I already had something. One really rare thing happened to me. So maybe another really rare thing could happen to me. I already had something happen in my body that I had no control over and I had no idea was happening. So what else is there that I don't know about? Like there's that kind of fear that even though our situations are very different, I really related to you saying that. Yeah. It takes away the weight of a statistic. Like it, it, it no longer has an effect on me. Like th- that peace of mind. I miss yeah, right. that peace of mind. Every time someone gives a statistic, I, the COVID thing really brought it up for me again. Like all <laughs> of the statistics. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like if I get, yeah. if I get COVID, I'm going to die. <laughs> that was my right. probably. Yeah. That's probably what, I mean, that probably you would probably, that's what you would think. Yeah. 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 Cause like, well, one in however many, so that's still one in however many, <laughs> Someone has to be the one. Someone has to be the one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not necessarily rational. No, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels very rational. It feels logical. Well, you had your whole, any sense of safety threatened and violated, you know, that, that idea speaks very much to me in, in like my situation, like Mm -hmm. safety became a really big thing. And, and I would imagine, especially I mean, I guess anybody who's gone through anything that, that threatens your life and way of being probably feels that, but yeah, I would imagine you feel it probably even more intensely because like, as you said, you, you weren't breathing when Cal was born. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just to have, you know, no memory of that. And then now you're home from the hospital 14 days later, which a 14 day hospital stay isn't nothing, but 14 days later to be at home with, after what you went through to be at home with a baby who's completely dependent yeah, is just wild. Like I remember coming home from a C-section and just not feeling like I could do all of the things yeah, that needed to be done. Yeah. It was, it was definitely wild is a great way to describe it. I I can't even, sometimes it's actually difficult to separate what is AFE and what is actual postpartum since I've never, since I'm a first time mom, um, I often Mm -hmm. have this conversation, like there's that newborn fog and I think mine was definitely exacerbated, but I don't really remember specifics from the first three months of Cal's life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much of that is newborn fog related and how much of that is also having the amount of transfusions I did and being hypoxic and all of that. But yeah, I think you mentioned it's just the, the complexities of returning home in that physical state with a newborn and with a partner who is extraordinarily traumatized. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that, that was, it, it's really tough to be, I felt, this is difficult to explain, but I felt left out. So all these people in my family who are amazing, saw this terrible thing happen to me. 
And then they all like 15 to 20 of them hung out hospital for the first five days, like waiting for me to wake up and bonding about this terrible experience. And I didn't get to be a part of that. And then I woke up and got everything dumped on me and it happened to me. And so when I came home, all these other people were traumatized. And I was like, yeah, I have no time for your trauma. Like this, I don't have space for it. You don't get to be traumatized, um, which is not the correct response. But in my state, that's how I felt. Um, That, of course, created a lot of strife in our marriage. Yeah, but it's hard when you are traumatized and you're still kind of learning and processing what happened to you to then try to be supportive of someone else who's dealing with their own trauma or to have their trauma put onto you. I imagine that would be really difficult yet. You know, when you say it, I'm like, well, they're also processing their trauma and they probably do want to talk to you because you're part of it for them, Mm -hmm. even though you don't remember it. And they, they were amazing at, you know, I wanted to hear about every single detail at all hours of the day mm-hmm. <laughs> and for them that was traumatizing and they 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 pushed through and gave me everything I needed and, and were amazing but you know my husband and I were both traumatized in different ways we deal with trauma differently and we also had a newborn between us to raise and Which so that was the was, newborn alone <laughs> is like a yes. big thing for a couple <laughs> yes 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 so. that's hard on a marriage for anybody yes yeah. So the, and, and again, it's, it's these conversations always jump around. I feel like because there's so many different facets of emotion and it's the trauma, but it's the grief, you know, I didn't, not only did I not get the golden hour, which is like apparently the best thing ever that everyone always really talks up. I do think there's an issue with our expectations around that, but Mm-hmm. I didn't get that. I didn't even, I wasn't even alive or awake for my baby being born. And no one was in the room when my baby was born, except for the 50 or so medical professionals. So I remember the first week I was like, I don't actually know if this is my baby. He looks nothing like me. No one saw him came out, come out of my body. Wow. I mean, that makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can't even imagine what that's like, you know, to be like, "Mm, uh, you know, you're telling me it's mine. Didn't see it. Didn't see it happen. No one saw it happen. Um, yeah, that, and well, and that's, again, that's another thing that kind of adds to all of it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think often trauma and grief are really like entwined, right? But it, you brought up an interesting point about like the way things are kind of like put out there and the expectations that are put upon us. And I think a lot of that probably has influenced, I mean, it, cause it influences again, a mom who has like a pretty standard birth and newborn phase. And so you have all of that coming at you as you're processing this. Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, cause mom guilt is no joke anyway. And you had it like tenfold. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and I had guilt that no one was there for him when he was born. And he was, I I have since done a wonderful reframe of this with my therapist, but I viewed him as being like born into this chaotic, terrible environment where his mom was dead and everyone was freaking out around him. 
And my therapist reframed that as, it seems like maybe he was born into a room and then everyone, which I did hear, cheered when he started breathing. And it was like this amazing. And then he was whisked off to the NICU where he got to be all cozy and he, there was nothing, not, I mean, there was nothing wrong with him, mm-hmm. um, which is no one understands to this day how me being down for six minutes with him inside and he came out, he had an APGAR three, but that's phenomenal considering um, the circumstances. He and he went right to an eight and then a nine. So he was only in the NICU for like 24 hours, but like I had, I held so much guilt and, and I still do about the way he was born and that I wasn't there for him. And that's hard for me. Um, and then I didn't bond with him. Also, we need to really normalize expectations around bonding. Cause I know plenty of moms who have not even dealt with birth trauma, who did not bond with their babies right away mm-hmm. and had so much guilt and shame about it. And it's, you are meeting this person for the first time. Mm-hmm. You have no idea who they are, what they, and they're just plopped on your chest. Well, and this and you're person expected. is responsible yeah. for kind of taking all of your independence from you. Yes. Yeah. And that's I, another thing that's not talked about like at all. Yes. Yes. They, yes. They change your whole life mm-hmm. and some ways in the better, of course, but some ways not. <laughs> and I was so traumatized by my situation that all I wanted to do was go back to my old life. Like I, I, I did not want to be a mom. I, my whole world had been turned upside down and I was like, nope, this is not what I signed up for. And that caused a lot of shame and a lot of guilt for me. Because as a new mom, you're just supposed to be so happy. Yeah. And so just madly in love with your newborn and you're not supposed to want anything else. other than being a mom and caring for your baby like that's that's what we're sold right yep Yep. and even though I like your experiences is rare and sounds very extreme a lot of women have that yes delayed bonding is a thing that we don't talk about and moms hold so much shame over it. Mm-hmm. And it's so normal. Right. Yeah. How, how yeah. long would you say that, like, how old was Cal when you kind of started to feel a bond with him? Um, an initial bond, like five or six months. Yeah. So I had postpartum depression. And so he was born in July. I got out of the hospital the last day of July. And um, August is just a blur. And then my husband went back to work in like mid-September. I cried every single day, every single day. It was mm-hmm. awful. I had ne- I'd never, I was so ready for the anxiety. I run anxious and I was like this, you know, heads up. Like I'm going to be probably super anxious and hypervigilant when I have a baby, like watch out for these signs, et cetera. I did not expect depression. And so that was really hard for me. And I ended up going on medication, which helped a ton. Um, I did start therapy the week I was out of the hospital, but that's only because I knew as a therapist that I was going to need it. Um, so good in the long, Mm -hmm. yeah, in the long run. Um, I definitely wouldn't have, I, I completely understand how women 
are in this situation and get out of the hospital, like therapy is not the first thing they're thinking of. Did anyone like on your team talk to you about how you might need it? Or you just, it it was because you knew you were going to do it. You needed it. They gave me a discharge packet that had some references in the back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But no actual conversation. No, you know who actually was the best was my cardiologist. She's this just amazing, phenomenal person. And she's very into like holistic medicine. And she talked to me all about like mindfulness and things I had already known about, but just was like, this is a really important time to use these coping skills, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. But yeah, besides that, there wasn't a whole lot of talk around. Like, I feel like there should have been some education around like medical trauma. Well, and I think, again, I think we have, the three of us spoke about this kind of how like most births include some form of trauma, kind of even touching on the fact, like what this little tiny human means for a woman's independence. Um, But uh, it's, it's very interesting that given everything that you went through, that it was not a conversation that was had before you were discharged. Mm -hmm. I had a doctor come in who was kind of ancillary to my case not not really directly involved very well-meaning but came in and told me that I just need to be happy I'm alive move on from this and not think about it and not feel guilty that I survived just buck up wow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean he might as well have said man up Mm -hmm. yeah and then it's interesting too, that you're like, I, sh- I struggled with that. Yeah. Like I struggled with feeling like I should just be grateful. Yeah. And yet I actually have all of these feelings. Yes. And oh God, it, it's, it really got me stuck in a moment. Like I wasn't able to process my trauma. You can't process your trauma if you're so concerned about your guilt and your shame related to your feelings of anger, of sadness, of grief. Like there's no processing trauma at that point. If you are pushing down those feelings, you have to bring them out. You have to unmask them in order to be able to process through them. Um, and so that really inhibited those first few months. I had a really hard time until I had a light bulb moment where I was like, oh, weird. I can be both angry and grateful at the same exact time. We can hold both of those opposing emotions at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive. Um, And once I learned that it was a lot easier for me to deal with because being angry and being sad doesn't mean I'm not grateful. No. Right. No, I think it's, I think it's common that we feel that way, right? Mm -hmm. That you can only have feel good or bad. You can't feel one or the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's probably from a young age because normally what we tell kids, no, you're fine, or, you know, stop crying, or because like, if you're crying, then you're not okay, or, you know, right. So where do you go from there? I mean, because you're here now, and you're talking about it so openly, and you're running, you know, peer support groups for other women who've had their own birth trauma, not just the same as, as yours, but all kinds of birth yeah. trauma, right? Yeah. Um, how do you get to a place where you're able to do that? Mm-hmm. Those are good questions. Um, so a lot of therapy <laughs> um, 
And I wanted to give back. That was the one thing that I, and, and I don't want it to, I always am very careful about this. I feel like people think like, oh my God, you're so amazing for being able to tell your story and being able to give back. Like it's my way of healing. It helps me mm-hmm. just as much as it helps other people. So while, yes, I, I do feel like I'm hopefully doing something good. I'm also doing it to help myself too. Like this is my way of climbing out of the darkness. I don't want other moms to go through what I went through in September and October and November of that year, because those were some dark times. And I wanted someone to just hold my hand and be like, I've been here. I know where you are and I'm okay to sit with you in it until you get out because I know you will get out and I can hold that hope for you until you're there. And I so desperately needed that and I didn't have it. Um, And so creating a space where that exists now, it has always been my goal. And I think for me, telling my story um, has never been super difficult. And that's because I don't remember it. And that is an advantage that I have for sure. If I was dealing with PTSD, if I was dealing with triggers from my birth story, I wouldn't be able to tell the story in the way that I'm able to. And some days it is hard because I'm becoming more and more connected to my trauma, like that I'm actually the person it happened to, Mm -hmm. um, which is taking Mm -hmm. a really long time. Um, And so some days it is harder, but for the most part, I'm able to very much tell my story and be somewhat separate from it. I think being a therapist, my ability to compartmentalize also helps with that too without getting, like, I I get DMs often from moms, like telling me their birth trauma. And I think to myself, like, thank God I can like separate the two or else I wouldn't be able to, you can't do it. And I think that's not be traumatized by that. Right. And I think that is a good warning to other people share your story. If you're ready. I, I, I love when people share their stories, but be really careful about how much it can bring in to you from other moms. And for me, I feel like I waited, I waited six months before I started this Instagram. And I'm really happy I did that because I wouldn't have been able to do it before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So getting to this point has involved lots of therapy, an SSRI, which is an antidepressant. And I have an amazing family support system. And I've noticed that within this community, that is a big difference maker. And there are unfortunately women who are not in as lucky of circumstances as I am. And they have family who are really invalidating of their trauma um, or who just don't have the time or space for it. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. And I think a lot of women have traumatic births on a, I don't know, a smaller scale. And I don't, I don't want to say that in a sense of minimizing their trauma, but not everybody recognizes it that my daughter wasn't breathing. They had to give her a CPAP and she was taken to the NICU and she stayed there for two days. That's not huge, but it still was traumatic. And lots of people have stories that are more like mine, mm-hmm. right? Like what happened with me is really common. Mm-hmm. And it's nobody's really talking about 
that being hard, nobody's looking at the parents and going like, wow, like, are you okay? That must have scared the crap out of you. Right. I think it was lots of women have births that don't go the way that they expected they were going to go. And And they have shame and guilt around that. And they're just supposed to be happy. They have this baby and that everybody's fine. Well, I think you, I don't know if it was you or somebody, I think I heard it in your clubhouse chat last night, or I've just been listening to too much trauma related (laughs) stuff. Um, But kind of how like a a trauma is how you respond to an event, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. How you perceive it. It's subjective. It's not objective. Right. So I think what I am like on a soapbox about how grief illiterate we are as a Mm. society that's my own personal banner to rise, raise. But like, I think listening again to your clubhouse chat last night and, you know, just it, this is making me think that I think we're really trauma illiterate as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we don't understand trauma. Well, we don't understand the levels of trauma and the complexities of trauma. And something else I was talking about last night is that Birth is such a unique situation. And unfortunately, it's a uniquely easy situation to be traumatized in because we are so vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. there are so many moments throughout a birth that could easily be turned from joy into trauma. And that is very unfortunate, but that is the nature of the vulnerable position that we are put in as moms. And if things go, amazing, then that vulnerability is beautiful and it's joyful and it's perfect, but things can go so quickly south just based on the way that you're spoken to. There are moms who have been traumatized by the way they were treated, not even physically, but emotionally in birth. That is traumatic. And and it doesn't need to be a near miss to be traumatic. And I think I agree with you that that is not, I mean, one in three birthers are traumatized. That's the research right now. So there's not, it's not one in three are not near misses. So there's lots of other trauma that is occurring for moms. And it's so frustrating to me because we are trauma illiterate. I love that. Um, (laughs) And so we don't understand how to support moms through that. And then we're throwing them into postpartum with a newborn and they have no support. And they don't even realize. So there's some moms who don't realize that they're traumatized until a year later. And then they get support and they, they dealt the effects of trauma without knowing it was trauma. And I think that's, that's just really sad that we have so many moms that are experiencing this. It is really sad. And, and I think I, I imagine a big part of it is, especially if there it's a, smaller or less like obvious trauma, the idea that, that, you know, we're circling back to that. You're just supposed to be happy that you have this baby. Mm-hmm. So how could you be traumatized by anything? Yeah. yeah. If, if you're healthy and baby's healthy, then everything's great. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe it isn't. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it isn't. And I think the best example I have of this happening Um, because I feel oddly like lucky enough that I can blame everything on my AFE and people accept it because they're like, Ooh, that is traumatic. Wow. You died. And then came back to life. Like you deserve to feel depressed and traumatized and all of these terrible things. Mm -hmm. But like, what if I had had postpartum depression with a normal birth? Right. 
Like, or what if I had been treated poorly in my birthing and was traumatized from that? And the perfect example I saw of this is I posted a TikTok the other day that was all of the things that people say to moms, like, well, at least you and the baby are healthy. At least you survived Mm -hmm. all of these things. And it was me saying like, don't say these things. Mm -hmm. And someone commented and said, what did they say? Um, Tell me you're a millennial without telling me you're a millennial. So basically calling me soft um, and saying, yeah. And so obviously they hadn't watched my video from before, which shows my birth story. Right. But they, I commented back something really snarky. Like, how do you know you've never given birth while dying without knowing, you know, something yeah. ridiculous. And they were like, sometimes oh my there's God. power in using your trauma to get at somebody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've done that. And they were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know your story. I hope you and the baby are okay. But like that difference in reaction. Oh, so now my trauma is valid enough for you. You've decided based on your scale that I deserve, that I'm worthy of your empathy now. What kind of BS is that? Trauma is subjective. I don't owe you anything. I don't care about your scale of trauma. It doesn't affect me. That is such a great example. And it probably, so many people are traumatized by their birth and have that minimized with things like, well, at least you're happy, Mm -hmm. right? I had this baby a hysterectomy is so perfect. It, yeah, baby's so perfect. Right? I had a hysterectomy and it's like, well, at least you had two children. Oof. Right? Like at least you've got two, so you can't and if you didn't have the hysterectomy, you were it was good like I had cancer. I had to have it removed, right? right. Like so of course I had the hysterectomy. Right given my options, right? but I'm sure people have probably said that to you too. Like, at least you got your one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. At least he didn't like, die. At least he, at least you he know, didn't die. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've had that said to me. And it, it is minimizing mm-hmm. and I'm not a millennial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they did. I am technically, I am technically a millennial, so I'll, I'll give them that. But um, it, I was so angry for the moms who would then read that, who have had a less severe birth trauma than me, right? And like, I've had, who you're trying to empower, yes, to then be exactly. cut down in that mm-hmm. way. Yep. And you know, we're talking about women's health which for such a long time like birth was not talked about Mm -hmm. men were not present for it Mm -mm. there's still a lot of people who are uncomfortable talking about Mm -hmm. and breastfeeding and all of the stuff that goes with that it lends itself I guess to people not feeling comfortable talking about their experiences or not feeling like you know, we don't know other women's story. We are given this narrative that you go to the hospital, you have the baby, everything's wonderful. You come home and like, it's great. Mm-hmm. And if that's not your story, then where do you go? And mm-hmm. who do you talk to? Well, and I, yeah, we, we don't really, I think, educate moms on what to expect after the baby comes no, other than how to change a, a diaper. Bit like 
it's still a little bit, I don't know, taboo. Mm-hmm. Well, because I think it's, you know, it's a gong show and nobody would have babies if they knew that. <laughs> and everybody's yeah. experience, it, it's so varied. Yeah. And even I have two children and both of my births were very different. And my postpartum experiences were very different with each, with each of them. So there's no guidebook. Yeah. There's no, no way that but it I goes think, for everybody. I think even in like a perfect scenario, there's still mm-hmm. an element of that fourth trimester. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a gong show. It is. I mean, I, I, I say most of it is my experience. I think all of our experiences is that basically all of it is, but, but even somebody who, whether it's just for social media or actually in real life, however perfect it is, there's still parts of it. Like nobody does well with no sleep. Nobody does Mm -hmm. well having to like change a diaper every like 30 seconds. And when they're just in one of the, like, there's so many things that come along with in that period. Right. Yeah even when we're talking like normal textbook, whatever. Yep. Yeah. Nothing could have prepared me for the sleeping, the yeah. lack of sleeping and how that actually impacted like my mental health. Yeah. And I, you know, you're going to have a newborn and you're going to be tired and they wake up all the time. I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, I've been tired. I know what tired is. Okay, fine. But <laughs> night after night after night it's a whole different ball game it's very interesting to me Kaylee that you're you had every reason to not feel any of the guilt or pressure because of what you and from my like from where I'm sitting yeah Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um and so it's just very interesting that that's still all of this the things that we see and are told and everything still even in in that situation impacted you so much yeah and as you both were talking I there's two I think there's two things that come up one is the rhetoric around don't you don't you dare share your scary birth story and scare pregnant moms Mm -hmm. I've gotten that a lot um and I have I have (laughs) so many thoughts about that um pregnant moms are not delicate little flowers that need protecting um they I'm not going to go up to a pregnant mom on the street who I don't know and tell her I almost died in childbirth. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, but moms deserve to be educated on the risks. Like, I should have known what an AFE is before birth. Would it have changed anything? No. Would it have changed my decision to have a baby? No. But we should still know all of the risks going into having a baby. And um, I think the whole BS around don't scare pregnant women is ridiculous. Again, there's a difference between going up to a random person you don't know and spouting your terrible birth story and (laughs) educating in an appropriate way. And I do. And the second point in the postpartum period is I totally agree with you. I don't think anything could have prepared me. And so I always go back and forth. Like we obviously need to talk about it more. We need to do more prepping for moms about postpartum and what it's like, but then also there is nothing that could have prepared me for certain things and certain feelings. And so my counter argument to that is, and my big push for moms is to have a postpartum plan. We are so focused on birth plans and that's fantastic and great. Often they get thrown out the window, but that's just my opinion. 
but a postpartum plan, like actually we had nothing. I had no plans. We were just going to have a baby and go home and figure it out from there. Like having a a support, a mental health support plan, where are you going to get therapy from? And if you don't, and you know, if you don't like it and you don't go back, fine, but have a plan for where you were going to go and an appointment scheduled before you have birth and know who's going to come and help you and your partner and all of that stuff. Yeah. Cause it's so true. I knew, you know, my, my postpartum plan was like, well, I don't know what day I'm going to have the baby on, but whenever the baby comes, my husband will probably take a couple days off work and then he'll go back to work. Like that's the whole plan. That's the plan. <laughs> yep. Right. I was never planning to have a C-section. So I didn't plan that maybe I was going to need my mom to come and stay because I wasn't going to be able to lift the baby. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to think about those things beyond just getting through the birth. It's so true. I don't think I've ever heard somebody say they have a postpartum plan. Well, par- <laughs> well, partners, I think, need to be better prepared too. Mm, yes. It's more than just like some class that you do together, right? Like they need... I, I, I don't know what it is, but they need some sort of support that's beyond like, this is how you change a diaper. Um, mm-hmm. It's so true. Or I mean, how much a woman talk- changes yeah. again, if everything goes according to plan. And then, yeah. then if you at the bare minimum have some of like a plan and this stuff in place, then you're, you're better equipped for, again, something standard, but then when, if, when the, when the trauma piece comes in or something as extreme as like your experience, at least you've already got a little bit, put some thought into it. And, and can, I think the leap to needing more support is a little bit easier to make maybe. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And as you know, we're talking about how little we talk to women about this and you know, don't scare a pregnant woman. So women aren't talking with women about this. Mm-hmm. Men are definitely not being talked to about this. Nope. And nobody's telling the husband, you know, for example, what to look out for that if their wife has postpartum, which is mm-hmm. relatively common. Like our husbands being educated on what the signs of that might be. I don't think so. No, I educated my husband just because I'm a therapist and was like, you need to watch out for these things in case I don't realize it's happening. (laughs) But no, that no one educates husbands on these things or sorry, partners, um, whether it's it's a husband or a wife, no one, no one is educating partners on these things, the non-birthing person. And I think they need to. Um, Mm -hmm. And on, on like, why are, why is the non-birthing partner not educated on things like delayed postpartum hemorrhage like like there are warning like there are physical things that happen to women after they give birth that are dangerous Mm -hmm. and I don't feel like anyone is educated on that that didn't happen in my birthing class no I don't think I ever heard of heard about it and I don't think I was sent home with anything about that either Mm -mm. and I kind of feel like after actually like post c-section that's probably likely when I had yeah. two of them. So yeah. how old is Callahan? How, so this was July of 2019. So he is about 20 months. Right. When would you say you felt like you kind of started kind of seeing the light again? 
Yeah. Great question. I get this probably daily um, on my Instagram from other moms. And it's a hard question to answer because it's definitely gradual. Yeah. Um, I would say the first six months were pretty hellish. And then I did start to sort of have some good days in there. I started to string together some good days with the bad days. And things started probably getting better around the eight or nine month mark. Mm-hmm. but then the one year anniversary was like right around the corner and that crushed me again. I actually yeah. had to return to the same hospital where my AFE happened at exactly like the same week that cow was born a year later for a major surgery. So it was lots and it was during COVID. So my family couldn't come. Right. So there was lots of re traumatizing there and sort of, mm-hmm. and, and regardless of the surgery, the one year brings up a lot for for moms who have had birth trauma, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, that felt like, I don't want to say a step back. I've learned that's not the case. We just have feelings and feelings happen to us. There's no stepping forward and stepping back. We just feel the way we feel. Um, but I was kind of ebbs and flows yeah. and waves. And yeah. yeah, there's no, this linear thing that I always talk about to my therapist. She's like, stop that not how we there's no like (laughs) path to recovery here you just feel feelings and some days are better than others so I had more bad days around that time and then 13 or 14 months out it started getting better again um and then I feel like I'm definitely functioning at a much better place now but I you know I haven't even touched the grief of infertility after one. And so I think I don't want to be one and done. So there's lots of talk of surrogacy, but that's prohibitively expensive. Yeah. So so much stuff still. So I would say, you know, things became survivable six months out and then nine months out better. One year was hard. And then through that, I feel like it, it got better. And I have moms reach out and are like, oh my God, I'm two years out and I'm still really struggling. First of all, mm-hmm. normal. Second of all, my timeline is based on someone who went to therapy the week she was just charged from the hospital. Right. Like that is that is the thing that got me above water more quickly than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think that's the biggest game changer for you? Yeah. Did you feel yeah. comfortable like right in the outset, like how you were saying, you know, you didn't want to feed him, you weren't bonding with him. Did you feel comfortable talking about that right at the outset with your therapist or because sometimes there are things that like, if they feel taboo, they can still even be hard to speak about even in that safe space. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't remember. You don't remember. I don't remember because it was so foggy. I don't even yeah. remember my therapist told me recently that when I called to make an appointment, she asked if I could wait. And I said, no. Right. She's like, can you wait a week? And I said, apparently, and I'm like a people pleaser. So I'm like, why would I? And she's like, you knew you needed help and you needed it right then. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you to recognize that. What would you say maybe to somebody who feels like they've been traumatized by their birth in terms of encouragement maybe or what advice you might give well first I would say that I'm so sorry that this happened to you um, and that you didn't deserve this to happen to you during a day that was supposed to be so wonderful Mm -hmm. and um, the advice I would give is just that it's really hard 
but it will get better. And I think knowing that it will get better with the right support is, is really important. You will not always feel like this. This is the most important thing in postpartum. You will not always, this is not who you are. This is just how you're feeling. Because when we go through a transition to postpartum and we become this mom and have this new identity and postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety comes along with that, we think that's who we are now. It is not who right. you are. And it will get better with the, with the appropriate support and treatment. Um, and the, the one really helpful resource I will say is um, if you're going to seek therapy, if you at all can definitely go see a therapist who has their PMHC, which is their perinatal mental health certificate. And if you go on postpartum support international's website, they actually have a directory there. And all of the therapists listed in that directory, which you can search by your location, have their PMHC. So I highly, highly recommend doing that. That's therapy. awesome. We will definitely put that link in our in our show notes so that people can find us. And if they want to find you, how do they do that? So you can find me on Instagram at the birth trauma underscore mama. And also I always like to plug this because they have great information. If you want to know any more, I didn't really get into full details about what an amniotic fluid embolism is, but if you want to know more and read other um, mom's stories, you can go to afesupport.org. They have fantastic wealth of knowledge there. That is fantastic. That's amazing. Thank Thank you you so much. Of course. Thank you for being on. Today. Yes, thank yeah, you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love getting to talk to other moms about this kind of stuff and just hearing other perspectives. It's always awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. And make sure to find us on Instagram at nowwhat underscore podcast. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.